Good evening. Today we're going to try to understand the Chayt of Korach. But we're going to try to understand the Chayt of Korach in a very specific fashion. First of all, usually when people speak about the Chayt of Korach, they speak about what it was that he did that was so bad, that demanded such a dramatic response. And the point that is usually focused on is that he was undermining the validity of Torah itself by asserting that Moshe was making things up and playing favorites. And therefore, the repudiation of those claims needed to be extremely public and clear and undeniable. But I would like to talk about Korach himself. What was so bad about Korach? He really becomes the paradigm of a certain kind of rishos, and his punishment was incredibly severe. And the question is, how did he get to that point, and what can we learn from him? And the second point is really the most important point. Now, one of the wonders and the privileges of my husband being the Rav in a community is that we get to spend time with some really incredible people. So obviously the people that he works with and all the people in our congregation, but really some special people that come in from out of town that we get to host. And my husband spends a lot of time with them and shows them around. And there have been some really illustrious Rabbanim and some really incredible female teachers also that I've had the privilege of hosting and showing around and spending a lot of time with. And it really is a unique privilege to be able to spend time with someone of a certain caliber for an extended period of time, for 48, 72 hours in a row, because you really get to know them and you really get to see them in a way that most people don't get to see them. It's not like seeing them, you know, sage on a stage type of thing, seeing them from far and hearing their Torah, which is a privilege in and of itself. But you really get to know them on a different level. And 99.99% of the time, they are even better than you would have thought. The incredible midos and just the everyday hanhagos, the everyday behavior of most of these people is really just so um, humbling just to see how they weigh every word and every action and the care and concern they express for others and the way that they just, their overall behavior really is incredibly inspiring. And it's really heartwarming to know that the people who are Machanach Yisrael, the people who teach the Jewish people, are of such outstanding character and caliber. And there also, unfortunately, is that 0.01% of the time when someone who you admire from afar and get to know a little bit better does not live up to your expectations. And I'm not talking about any kind of scandal or something criminal or salacious. I'm talking about just on a level of midos that you would have expected from a Rebbe Bistral or a teacher in Israel, male or female, where you expect them to display a certain amount of midos, a certain level of care and concern for others, a certain humility, and you don't find it. And that really can be very disappointing. Um, As I mentioned, I have had the tremendous privilege to get to know so many incredible people here. And also when I lived in Israel, um, teaching in so many different schools, I really got to know a lot of these people very well. And as I mentioned, almost all of the time getting to know them was just even more humbling and even more inspiring. But there was one time when I was invited to partake in a project with a very, very well-known, charismatic, talented teacher. She was a person that I had admired from afar for many years. And I was so excited to get to spend time with her and really to learn from her. I remember saying to my husband, I just kind of want to follow her around. I was supposed to collaborate with her, but I was like, well, I I just want to follow her around and see what she does and learn from her. And it turns out that my interaction with her was extremely disappointing. It was not only one interaction, it was a series of interaction in which she displayed behavior that I found extremely, extremely disappointing and disturbing. And eventually, because of the way that I felt about the way that she did certain things, I eventually had to excuse myself from the project. And it ended on good terms. She did not know what I thought or what I saw or anything like that. 
but it was definitely something that left a mark. And I never said anything to anyone. Um, a few months or even years later, I had occasion to uh, meet up with an old mentor of mine um, who I had been very close with when I was engaged. And after checking in with me a few times after I got married, was confident that I was doing okay. And therefore I started getting less and less time. And that's okay, that's how it goes. And, um, but one trip that she made, I got the privilege of driving her to the airport. And we were talking about things that I was involved in and things that I was doing. And she asked me about this particular project. And at first I kind of answered in a very parv fashion. I didn't see any need to go into it. I knew that she knew this particular woman and I wasn't, obviously there was no reason to speak about it. Gratuitously, I had no desire to make this woman seem less in her eyes. But as I answered in this very par fashion, this mentor of mine who knew me so well looked at me and said, what happened? And it all just came flowing out. I had really been very, very negatively affected by these interactions. It was really, it was almost traumatic the way in which this woman who I had looked up to, I was very, very upset by the way that she treated me. And she really did actually damage me and, you know, in a, in a monetary fashion and in a, in, a, in a bunch of different ways. And it was really very difficult for me. And when this woman kind of pressed me even a tiny bit, my mentor, I, it just all came flowing out. And I told her basically the whole story in as short fashion as I could because we were on our way to the airport. And I could see as I was talking to her how sad and she was like kind of tensing up. And, you know, she did take the time afterward to speak to me about it in terms of anything that I should do practically. But the first thing she said when I stopped talking was she looked at me and she said, Rivka, how do we keep ourselves from becoming like this? And that reaction really stayed with me because there is a certain haughtiness. There is a certain, you know, something when you see somebody else behave in a degraded fashion where you kind of like feel good about yourself. (laughs) And it is easy to look from afar and say, oh, let's analyze this person's behavior and why she behaves in this way or that way. Or let's analyze this great rabbi or this person in Tanakh and say, what was it that led to their sin? But Hashem reveals things to us, not in order to criticize or to psychoanalyze, but to help ourselves. What is it that we're supposed to be learning from here? And therefore, even in the case Lahavdil of somebody as great as Korach, we need to look. If we are going to investigate personally what went wrong, there has to be a place where we say to ourselves, how do we not end up like Korach? And this, in Korach's case, is even more because Korach, as much as I mentioned that this woman was someone who I admired from afar, Korach, according to everyone, was someone of such incredible spiritual development and elevation that we must be able to say that if he went wrong, there had to be something there. There was something that led him astray. This wasn't a person that wasn't that, that spirituality wasn't available to. This wasn't a person who didn't know better. This wasn't a person who wasn't developed in his character and in his knowledge. This was a person of incredibly vast, developed character and knowledge and elevation. So if there was something that led him astray, we really need to understand it. This is actually to such an extent that the Satna Rebbe used to tell um, on Parshas Korach of his grandfather, the Yitav Lev, who used to tell about his father, the Yismach Moshe, that the Yismach Moshe said that he came down to this earth in three Gilgulim, three times he came into Olam Hazeh. I have no idea what that means, but that's what he said. I don't, I don't understand. I mean, I know that there is such a concept. I'm just saying I don't want to make it seem like I fully integrate this concept of Gilgulim. But this is what he said, that he was in the world three times. And the first time was at the time of the rebellion of Korach. And his son, the Yitav Lev, asked him, well, whose side were you on? As he was describing the um, interaction. And he said, I was with pride. He said, I was neutral. And his son looked at him. You're talking about a person of incredible godless, the Yismach Moshe. 
And he said to him, you were neutral in horror. How could you have doubted Moshe Rabbeinu? And Yismach Moshe turned to him and said, if you're even asking me that question, you don't understand what was the godless of Korach. You would be so shocked to understand who, how, how great the conflict was because Korach was a person of such incredible stature. But even more than his greatness, there is an extra element of Korach's motivation, which is that almost everyone agrees that Korach's desire was spiritual. He wanted to serve Hashem on a higher level. And we can see this clearly from just the story in Chumash itself and the comments that Chazal make elsewhere. If you look in the Chumash itself, where it describes the conversation between Korach and Moshe Rabbeinu, Korach begins by saying to Moshe Rabbeinu, Rav Lecha, I'm sorry, Rav Lachem, Ki chol ha'eda kulam kedoshim uvesocham Hashem, umadua tisnasu al-kahal Hashem. Korach says to Moshe, Rav Lachem, referring to him and his brother, you took too much. You took more than your share. We are all holy. Why is all the power, so to speak, or really more than not the power, the spiritual elevation, why is it only for you and your brother? And when Moshe turns back to him, he says to, he says to Korach and his followers, Rav Lachem B'nei Levi. No, it is you who are usurping. It is you who are taking more than your share. And when Moshe Rabbeinu is set to go or wants to go into Eretz Yisrael, when he reports the way that Hashem responds to him, he says, Vayomer Hashem Eli, Hashem says to me, Rav Lach, it's too much for you. Al Tosef Daber Eli Od Badavar Hazeh. Don't argue with me anymore about this. Don't continue to request entry into Eretz Yisrael. And the many Mephorshim point out that these words, as I'm sure we know, were not used by accident. That HaKadosh Baruch Hu used these words in order to teach Moshe a lesson. And what was the lesson that Moshe was supposed to learn? And why specifically here? Why did Moshe Rabbeinu want to go into Eretz Yisrael, right? As, the Medr- as, as we are told, was it to eat the fruits? Was it to admire the scenery? No, chas v'shalom, Moshe Rabbeinu wanted to go into Eretz Yisrael for the Kedusha, to keep the mitzvot hatzluyos ba'aret, to soak in the incredible spiritual elevation of the land in Israel. That's what he wanted. And he wasn't allowed to. But that was his motivation. And Hashem says to him, you know who had the same motivation? somebody who you were dismissive of. Korach had the same motivation. Korach's motivation was spiritual. He wanted spiritual elevation. And when Moshe Rabbeinu turned to him and he said, Rav Lachem, you know, it almost sounds like a Lahav deal. Like my 10-year-old son would say, oh, it's a good comeback. He used his exact words. But saying it to him in that way was dismissive. Moshe Rabbeinu Korach deserved the punishment, of course, that Akadosh Baruch Hu gave him. But that added element of dismissiveness, that was misplaced. There should have been a level of compassion. There should have been a level of understanding that Moshe had toward Korach, because in the end, Korach really did want spiritual elevation. And therefore, if it is really true that Korach wanted Ruchnius, again, we have to ask, what happened? So let's look in the Chumash itself where it tells us what it is that happened, what it is that Korach actually wanted. I'm sorry, this is not what happened. This is when Moshe Rabbeinu is telling Korach what he did wrong. And it is also describing what it is that Korach wanted. Moshe Rabbeinu is telling Korach why it is that he is wrong, why it is that he is asking too much. And he says to Korach, you want elevation. HaKadosh Baruch Hu already gave you elevation. You and all of your brothers were already made Levian. But that wasn't enough for you. And that was Korach's mistake. The problem was that Hashem gave him an elevated status, but for him that wasn't enough. He was a levy, that wasn't enough, and he wanted the kahuna. Now, 
Moshe's response was that Hashem had already elevated him. And his implication was that this was a terrible sin, that he wasn't happy with what he had and he wanted more. So again, the same question, why is it terrible? Should we not always strive for more, especially when it comes to spirituality? So the Zohar describes the process by which Korach went astray. And I'm going to read this in English because, of course, the Zohar is in Aramaic. Rabbi Yitzchak said, Korach was the greatest of the Levian, as Hashem created him below, corresponding to that which is above. And he called him Korach. When was he called this? At the time that he was shaved, as it says, he is Korach. Korach means shaved. Karuach means like someone who is shaved. And when Korach saw his head without hair, and he saw Aaron, Aaron a Kohen, adorned with kingly vestments, he became low in his own eyes, and he was jealous of Aaron. And Hashem said to him, I made you as you are above. You don't want to ascend to the highest worlds? Then go down and be at the lowest worlds. Korach had the potential to be the highest of the high. Korach was an image. He had the potential to be just like this paradigm of Levia, this paradigm of humanity in Shemayim. But he didn't want that. And because he only wanted something else, because he didn't want that, it would end up that he was not at the highest of the high, but of course the lowest of the low, as he was swallowed into the earth. In order to understand this and what was wrong with it, we need to understand what wasn't enough for Korach, meaning what was it that was lacking to him in the Levia that he wanted in the Kahuna. So what do we already know about the difference between a Kohen and a Levi? Of course, a Kohen is more elevated. He is the one who does the actual avoda. Levia means to accompany. He is the helper. He is the one that actually makes it possible. He does all the surrounding work in order that the Kohen be able to do his avoda. And actually, that is what the name Levi means. Levi was named he who accompanies because he was the one who completed the section of children that Leah was meant to have. She then went on to have three more, but there were supposed to be four imahos, which there were. Each one, if there were supposed to be 12 tribes, was set to have three. And Leah, in the end, got one of each of the other imahos' children. But originally, her original portion was three, and Levi was her third child. He's called kind of the one who accompanies or the one who completes. When the Kohanim and the Levian were prepared, prepared were preparing, I'm sorry, for service, the process through which Korach, of course, went astray, meaning when the Zohar was describing him being shaved, it was describing the process through which the Levium were prepared for service, a part of which was being shaved from head to toe. The process is called Kedusha for the Kohanim and Tahara for the Levium, holiness for the Kohanim and purity for the Levium. Kedusha is definitely a higher level than Tahara. Tahara means purity. And in our understanding, that means that nothing negative has happened and the status quo has been maintained. Kedusha, on the other hand, is holiness. It's an extra level on top of Tahara. This, of course, is what Korach wanted. He didn't want to be just Tahor, quote unquote. He wanted to be Kadosh. But Tahara, as we'll see in a second, is not really neutral. In order to understand this a little more, let's look at the exact physical peculiarity that Korach got so upset about. The Levium, as we saw, were shaved from head to toe in preparation for their service. And Korach, of course, means shaved, meaning that this person, who could have been the best Levi ever, the perfect Levi, this would have been kind of his main characteristic this paradigm that of Levia, right, was called Korach. And of course, a name is an essence. That was the S that could have been, if he had achieved that, the essence of who he was, his main characteristic, his greatest spiritual contribution. Okay, so what is it about being shaved that epitomizes him? 
And ironically, of course, but this isn't really, it makes sense. This is the thing that bothered him most because he didn't appreciate it. What is hair? Hair, interestingly, is actually spoken about many, many places in Jewish thought in Chazal. Hair is the ultimate adornment. What does that mean? It means something extra. It's not part of the base. It isn't really necessary, but it can make something very beautiful and complement it. It is an extension of self in that it grows out of the self, but it is not really self. And hair is it's, it can glorify the human being or whatever grows it, but like any augmentation, it can also take away if it's not taken care of or if it's not kept properly. It can be wild. It can hide or even sully the beauty if it's not used properly. The avoda of a levy requires removal of this adornment. Why? Because the avoda of a levy is purity. The avoda of a levy is don't do wrong. Allow your inner greatness to be revealed by uncovering it, by removing the bad. Boundaries, perfection. Korach looked like his paradigm above only when he was shaven. That's why he was called Korach, because that was an indication of what his avoda was all about. No adornment, beauty in its perfection and simplicity, and clean lines and boundaries. No unkapach, no embellishment. No trimming, no decoration. There are really, for all of us, two elements of our service of Hashem. Two basic elements. Of course, there are many elements. These are personified by the Kohen and the Levi because like all parts of Klal Yisrael, different parts do personify different characteristics or different types of avoda, but those characteristics are really found also within each one of us. So there are two essential, essential aspects to our service of God that are personified by the Levi and the Kohen. And they also roughly correspond to Ahava and Yira or Mitzvah's Asseh and Mitzvah's Los Asseh. What do I mean by that? As a person, we have two essential ways of growing. One is, from, is by refraining from doing wrong, and one is by actively doing good. Refraining from doing wrong basically comes from the Midah of Yira, of awe or fear. And this is practically brought about in mitzvah lo saseh, meaning I refrain from doing those things that are going to distance me from God. I refrain from doing wrong. I refrain from doing things that are going to sully my neshama. There is another aspect of our avodah, which is actively doing good, which of course is practically personified by mitzvot asay, by positive commandments, and comes from the root motivation of ava, of love of Hashem. These are both absolutely essential. The Levian epitomized that first aspect of avodah, and Korah had the ability to be the greatest of the Levian, to really excel and epitomize this. This is the avoda of perfection, of boundaries. That does not mean nothingness. It means a perfectly polished diamond, which is invaluable in and of itself, without anything on it. Tahara, yes, status quo, but a status quo of beauty and greatness. One of the physical representations of this was that they were shaved completely. Korach thought this was embarrassing, and he looked at Aaron, who had a different aspect of avoda grandeur, adornment, and he couldn't appreciate what he had. The tragedy is that Korach didn't need hair. He was perfect without it. This is when he achieved his ultimate purpose, to be like the paradigm that exists above. Why is it that he didn't appreciate it, and I dare say that we don't appreciate it as well? If you think about it, there are more mitzvot losaseh than aseh. This is really the basis of our avoda. Yira gets a bad rap. It seems way less glamorous. We don't really value it. We don't really value the mitzvot losaseh. We feel like, okay, so I didn't do anything wrong, but where is the glamour? Where's the beauty in that? No one comes home and says about our day, their day, oh, I didn't rob a bank, or I didn't do this, or I didn't do that. 
Although if it's a struggle, might, and some of us might be very, very proud of ourselves for the five minutes that we didn't speak Lashonara. The focus, though, on mitzvah's low sase seems so negative. It seems so banal. Like, what's the big deal? As it did to Korach. For us, I really think a huge part of the fact that we don't appreciate it is because we are so, so influenced by Western culture that has a rich tradition of looking at humanity wrong. And we have been inculcated with this philosophy. We are not, as the Western philosophers tell us, a tabula rasa, a blank slate. We are not, as human beings, something that is just neutral. Okay, we have a life. If we choose to do something positive, great. And if not, whatever. That's not how we think. And all great Western philosophy is based on this presupposition, and it has invaded our being. If we are a blank slate, then to make something great, we must do something, acquire, build, adorn. But they are wrong because we are not a blank slate. We, as Jews, are a chilek elokami ma'al. We have an neshama. There is innate greatness that is bursting, that is overflowing, erupting from our inner being. We are innately magical. It is true, we live in a physical body and in a physical world. And therefore, sometimes there are things that conflict with that abounding amazingness and hide it and sully it. And those things, those, that physical body, that sense of self, that desire can obfuscate the positive. It can make us lose track of the greatness that is within. The low sases, the negative commandments, are what allow us to maintain that pure neshama inside of us, to keep access to it, to allow it to shine. Because shine it does always, just sometimes we can't see it. It is the restraint, the boundaries, the clean lines that exemplify this type of avoda. And this was the avoda of the Levi, this was the avoda of Korach. But for Korach, he didn't appreciate it. It was not enough for him. He wanted that adornment. He didn't see the value in that type of avoda, in the perfection. And that really is our main avoda in our lives, is to polish the greatness that is already inside And in our own avoda, it is really this avoda that needs to come first. The polishing, the perfection needs to come before the adornment, just like Huna needs to come from the Levia. And that is why Moshe says, you are not going to be a Kohen. That is not your role. And because you have not embraced the Levia, you won't even be a Levi. The message for us, obviously, is that our individuality is intrinsic. It does not need to be created. It's the opposite. By looking to create something, you're losing what is inside. Every neshama is a masterpiece. And our job is just not to sully the glass. Yes, of course, we must do and embrace mitzvot asay as well. But we have to value this part of our avodah. And what happened? Because Korah couldn't appreciate who he was, he tried to become something who he was not and would never be. And so Hashem said to him, aren't you happy to be like the Adam Lamala, like the perfect paradigm of man? I made you perfect. All you have to do is keep yourself that way. Which is what Korah looked like, perfection. But he wasn't happy with that. He was jealous and wanted to be like Aaron with all his hair and all his glory. The message for us is that we must appreciate that we have built-in internal greatness. The first and most important step in our avodah is to maintain and protect that greatness. That is not nothing. That is amazing all by itself. And it needs to be appreciated. And it is the prerequisite for everything else. So what happened to Korach? Where does a lack of that realization lead? Meaning, I understand that he didn't appreciate who he was, but what was the specific thing that led him astray? Or to phrase it in the positive, how do you do that? 
How do you know when to have spiritual ambition and when not? Korach is, of course, contrasted with the person who did it right, who is Aaron Akohen. He was not Zohet. Aaron Akohen was not Zohet to Kahuna because he was greater than Korach. But he was Zohet to Kahuna because that was his calling. How do we know that? And what does it teach us? So if you look at the Pasuk that describes Aaron, um, that describes the miracle of the Mate, which is after the whole argument between Moshe Rabbeinu and Korach, after Korach and all his followers are killed through a number of different miracles, the story, so to speak, continues. And um, each Shevet is ordered, each tribe is ordered to bring their staff to the Ohal Moed and each and to leave it overnight. And whosoever staff sprouts almonds, which is a symbol of Shevet Levi and the Kahuna, that's a subject of a different, of a different talk, um, whichever staff sprouts almonds, that is how B'nai Israel will know that, that this tribe is truly deserving of the Kahuna. Because even though Korach himself was already destroyed, the argument of Korach did bring up this um, doubt within B'nai Israel as to whether or not Moshe was taking the, the um, spiritual elevation, the positions of spiritual elevations only for his family. Okay, so everyone brings their staff and So what happens? The next day comes and Moshe comes to the Ohal Moed and everyone else's sticks stayed themselves, stayed regular. But the one that belonged to Aaron Kohen, who of course was representing the tribe of Levi, now, I would think that, it, or one would think, that it would be enough of a miracle if this plain stick had just sprouted almonds, right? Then we all would have believed him. But it didn't just sprout almonds. It first sprouted, then grew buds, and then from those flowers grew almonds. So why did it need to grow like that? Why did there need to be such a miracle? Why did it need to be that the shkedim didn't just appear, that it grew out of the mata? This was really in order to show us what Korach had done wrong. So let's look at the opposite. What did Korach do? So if you look in the Zohar that we quoted before, the Zohar says that he looked at Aaron, he saw that his grandeur, and he wanted that grandeur, he became jealous. There are also quite a number um, of Midrashim that speak about what Korach saw. Either he saw great grandsons of him who themselves were, um, who were great people, even Kohanim or whatever it was, that Korach saw, there were things that Korach saw that convinced him that he should have that grandeur. And each of those Midrashim, even though they refer to different things, all include basically the same words, which are enav hitaso. His eyes made him make a mistake. His eyes deceived him. He was fooled by his eyes. So what is this contract between Korach being fooled by his eyes and Aaron, who was exemplified by this stick that sprouted these almonds? An eye is a sense that takes in surroundings. Basically, the way that we work in the physical world is that we see something, we evaluate, decide whether we want it, and then we try to bring it into a purview. We try to acquire it if we decide that it's worthwhile. This is the exact opposite of the way that spiritual growth needs to be. Spiritual growth needs to be from within. It needs to be organic. And that is why the stick of Aaron did not just all of a sudden sprout almonds. No. First, it had sprouts. Then those sprouts made buds and flowers. And then that produced the almonds. Because real proper growth comes from within as a natural outgrowth. 
Aaron Cohen was the Kohen, was the Kohen Gadol, because he needed to be the Kohen Gadol. Why? Because this is what Ruchnias is all about. It is totally the opposite of Gashmias. Ruchnias spirituality comes from seeds that Hashem plants within us. Besides the beauty of the neshama, which we spoke about for the first half of this class, each neshama, besides being amazing and overwhelming and glorious, is also unique. Every single neshama has its own seeds that a Kaddish Baruch Hu puts in there in order for us to develop. It is our job to bring them out. The way that Ruchnius goes is from the inside out and not from the outside in. Korach, who was a person of great, amazing potential and spiritual development, made the mistake of looking outward and deciding what he wanted to be like, as opposed to looking inward and deciding what he had uniquely to contribute to the world. There is a beautiful story about a Hasidic Rebbe who went to um, Pshisk. And Reb Simcha Bunim, of course, was the Rebbe in Pshisk. And this Hasidic Rebbe was um, once giving a tish in Reb Simcha Bunim's domain. And some of Rav Simcha Bunim's chassidim went to him and said to him, you know, someone's trying to usurp your power. And it was Parshas Korach. And Rav Simcha Bunim told them the following. They said, he said, after the, after the um, staff of Levi sprouted, after the staff of Aaron sprouted these shkidim, these almonds, it says in the Pasuk that the rest of the Nisim came back and took their staffs back. Why did they take their staffs back? Like, what was the point? They had the staffs that didn't flower. Why did they want their plain old staffs back? And he says, because each Nasi walked around with their staff as their own staff, as the one that didn't blossom, because they were happy and content with their own staff. The Nasi of Ruvain needed to be the Nasi of Ruvain. And he was content and happy being the Nasi of Ruvain because that's who he needed to be. And the Nasi of Shimon was content and happy being the Nasi of Shimon because that's who he needed to be. And nobody else's grandeur takes away from anybody else's because we are all totally, completely unique and individualized. And when we look for our own avoda, we need to ask ourselves, what's within me that I need to bring out? Korach's problem was that he wanted something that he wasn't fit for. But that is a lack of appreciation for what spirituality itself is. He was applying a gashmias, a physical attitude toward Ruchnias. He was trying to achieve something that was not his to achieve. And the tragedy, of course, is that he missed out on his own greatness of being a levy because he wanted something else. And that is why Aaron stick blossom, because Aaron, Aaron's growth was from within. He didn't ask for this. This is what Hashem made me. And what we have to see is there is a greatness in the way Hashem made all of us. Korah could have achieved that greatness if he had focused on his own role. The point for us, of course, being that Ruchnias is from the inside out, not from the outside in that developing ourselves spiritually has to be about development and not acquisition. The practical application of this is almost too easy, but, it's, it, but it, it needs to be said, which is that the time that we live in, more than any other time in history, is a time when we are exposed constantly to the achievements of others constantly to the pictures of others and what they do and what they want and their accomplishments, both physically and even spiritually. And this is so damaging to natural, organic, healthy growth. It is so hard to ignore what everyone else is doing and what everyone else is saying and what everyone else is accomplishing. It is so hard. But we have to recognize that that way of looking at the world is an incredibly physical way of looking at the world. We have to stop applying Gashmias to our Ruchnias. Even in Gashmias, looking outside and seeing what people have and trying to make like that is not great. But when it comes to Ruchnias, it's antithetical 
to the essence of spirituality itself. Spirituality means taking what I have inside and bringing it out. And it is so hard to do in the world that we live. It's really hard. Now, of course, there is a place of being inspired by others, of learning from others. There is, of course, a place of learning things from others and saying to yourself, wow, I see this. Maybe it expands, expanding your horizons, something that you might have never thought to do. And when you see somebody else do it, you ask yourself, is this something that I should be involved in? Wow, look at what that person has achieved. That's inspiring. That's motivating. But it has to come in a way where the person is asking themselves, is this something that is shayach for me? Is this something that connects to me? Is this something that makes sense for me? And this is something that we have to be so careful that we, that has to be so careful of, especially, especially in the world in which we live. And it's interesting because I, I somewhat attribute, of course, there are many reasons for this, but I think that this midah of being able to focus on what I need to be doing and not what other people need to be doing is a big part of the reason for the tranquility of tzaddikim, of gedolim, of very big people. It is not because they are complacent, the opposite. They are people of incredible ambition. They accomplish so much in the realms of spirituality, of learning, of growth. They accomplish so much and they have an intensity and an ambition about them. They're not content. They're not content to stay on their, on any spiritual level. They push and push and push and push. And yet they are so tranquil at the same time. Why? Because they are, they, they have everything that they need from within. They're not looking around. They're not comparing themselves to others. That feeling of looking, of, of trying to copy, of doing something that's unnatural, of unorganic, that is something that takes away tranquility. That's something that makes someone frenetic. That's someone that makes something uneasy because they are not, con- they are not connected to who they are. They are always looking outside of them and that takes away a tremendous amount of tranquility. And that can be the opposite of well as well. If we can stop looking outside, yes, to be motivated, yes, to learn, but not to copy, we can achieve that tranquility itself. We can focus on really growing as opposed to cutting and pasting, as opposed to trying to acquire. There is really a second point that I think, or a second category of practical application that I really think is even more important. And that is that it has to be obvious to us that someone who looks at the outside who is looking to um, over-identify, meaning who sees something great and says, I want to be just like that, rather than looking at who they can become, is very connected to that first point of valuing the neshama, of valuing the greatness that is innate within, and that polishing that greatness is an achievement in and of itself. Meaning, a person can be led to looking outside because they don't value their innate neshama. They don't value the amazingness that is already there in their chilek al and that just focusing on that and polishing that and taking care of that is already an achievement. And this point, I think, we'll say in the positive and also in the negative which is really a very, very important point that is so applicable to the time in which we live. I really think that that ability to be able to connect to the neshama, to be able to see it and value it, really is what allows great people, very developed people, again, to see the greatness in everyone. 
Sometimes when we see that really great people really love and appreciate all other people, even people who we would assume they wouldn't appreciate, people who don't necessarily do the right thing, people who seem base, people who seem awkward, people who seem all kinds of things, right? They really appreciate every, every single person. And we think to ourselves, why do they appreciate every single person? Because they're able to get over maybe things that are unimportant, like social graces or things like that, Or maybe they're even able to kind of assume the best of people, even when they see people do things that are objectively wrong. So you have someone who's a great sinner, and you have a great person, a developed person, a gadol, a tzaddik, who's able to really genuinely love and appreciate this sinner, or this person who is offensive in some way, or this person who's just not very likable. So why are they able to do those things? I think we think of it as kind of like an outgrowth of Dan Lekav's chus, right? They work on themselves to get over the bad. But I really think there's something deeper there, which is, it's not just that they work on themselves to get over the bad, which I'm sure that they do. It's because they are so naturally connected to the good. Meaning every single one of those people, even the greatest of sinners, has an amazingly valuable neshama that this person, because of their own spiritual development, is able to see and connect to. So they don't need necessarily to try as hard to erase the bad because the good, the neshama, the overflowing, brilliant neshama is shining through to them from behind. And wouldn't it be wonderful if we could connect to our own neshamas, we could probably see other people's as well. Meaning they're not looking at the outside. They're even not looking at the positives, at the accomplishments, not even the, the spiritual ones. They're looking at the essence. Um, a good friend of my husband's told him that um, after growing up in a um, Torah observant home, he went through a few years where he was not as committed to mitzvot observance. And he experimented with a whole lot of different things. And one day he decided that he was interested in coming back. And he took a trip to Israel where his cousins and, you know, his extended family who were committed to Torah and mitzvot kind of took him around in order to kind of reinitiate him. And he went to lots of different places. And, you know, he says it in a funny way to my husband. He said, I got tons of attention because I did not look the part of a yeshiva bachar. I had a ponytail. I didn't dress the way that boys around me were dressed. And he said that he went around and he really was inspired. But he said there was one thing that kind of put him over the edge that sent him back in the direction of a Shomer Torah and Mitzvot. And what was that? He said that he had the occasion to go to the Shalash Shudasif of Tzvi Meyer Zilverberg, who is someone of, you know, really incredibly of elevated spirituality in Yerushalayim. And he has this lights out singing Shalash Shudas and he speaks and it's, from what I hear, really just awe-inspiring. And he said, I went to the Shalashodas and I was really moved. And I waited on a very, very long line afterward to say good Shabbos to Rav Tzvi Meyer. And when I finally got there, Rav Tzvi Meyer took my hand, shook it with warmth and with um, love. And he looked in my eyes and he gave me such a good Shabbos. And he asked me, he asked about me. He, you know, he asked about my background, et cetera, et cetera. And we had a nice little talk. So he told my husband, he said, this wasn't the first person who gave me so much attention. As I said, I was the Kirov case. Everyone wanted to talk to me. He said, but Rav Tzvi Meyer wasn't talking to me because of my ponytail. Rav Tzvi Meyer was just talking to me. He didn't notice my ponytail. And he said that really was a transformative moment for me where I could felt someone that just saw my neshama. He wasn't trying to ignore the stuff on top, the distractions. He didn't need to because he saw my neshama and connected to my neshama so clearly. So if we are going to have that attitude toward others, we of course need to start with ourselves and end with ourselves, meaning the way that we look at ourselves is an even more important. And this is really difficult in the world that we live in. And the reason is because we live in a world of acquisition. 
Now, acquisition really seems positive because aren't we supposed to be ambitious? Aren't we supposed to be doing things? Aren't we supposed to be accomplishing? And of course we are, but we are supposed to be accomplishing in a certain way. When did it become the biggest compliment that a person is busy? Meaning that is like the ultimate. That is like the statement that a person is important, that a person is accomplished if they are busy. The world in which busy is a compliment is a world in which my self-worth is based on how many things I cross off my to-do list. That I actually feel like a better person if I have purchased this exact thing that I need for an art project, this thing that this child needs for an outfit. If I have done my PT exercises, if I have done the last, you know, the le- prepared my ingredients for this Shabbos meal. Now, all of those things can be extremely positive, but when your life becomes a to-do list, it becomes something that is disconnected from who we are inside. And I'm not, I just want to be clear about something. I am not talking about distraction. Distraction is when I want to do A, but this is so appealing and I see this tab and this text that I can't focus because of all of the lights and whistles. And that really is something very challenging, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about something else. I'm talking about the culture of to-do. I'm talking about a culture in which we are so, we have become so obsessed with doing the things on our list, with accomplishing minutia, and even accomplishing big things, but it's all accomplishment as opposed to what our real Ikar Avoda is supposed to be, which is refining, polishing, taking care of, refining and protecting that which we already are. And that really is just not valued because it cannot be seen and it cannot be measured, it cannot be advertised, it cannot be photographed and put on, you know, and put on whatever our social media, text, etc. it is. When someone sits with themselves, when someone is, sets boundaries, when someone makes sure to stay away from those things that sully their relationships, that sully their neshama, that get in the way of their relationship with Hashem, that is not something that is so easily quantified and it's definitely not something that's so easily spoken about or given over to others. And when we live in a world that we're always looking to accomplish, we're always looking to acquire, to do the next, next thing, it really can become frenetic and thoughtless and disconnected. It's really impossible to look inside and polish when you're always looking for the next great thing. This is also true in Gashmias, but especially in Ruchmias. We need to let ourselves be. We need to appreciate the great gift that Hashem gave us that we already have and make sure that we are preserving it, protecting it, perfecting it, polishing it, and to spend time on that instead of always looking outwards of what the next thing is to do.